Okay, we're in John chapter 7, and we finished off last lesson, John chapter 7 and verse 13. We were looking at the first part of, first 13 verses in John chapter 7. Feast of the Tabernacles is approaching. This is one of three feasts of the year when all the men are supposed to gather together in Jerusalem. And before going to the feast, Jesus said, The world can't hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. So we talked about that the last time. Jesus said the world hated him. The world still does hate Jesus because he testifies that what it's doing is evil. And uh, he warns many places in the scriptures that his followers would be hated as well. And in the beginning, many of his followers were killed, were persecuted. I have friends who are followers of Jesus in other countries where they're facing severe persecution. So while we may not be facing it here in the United States at this point in time, that could change at any point in time. We just can't take that for granted. But just realize that that, uh, that Jesus told us right, right up front that he was hated. His followers will be rejected, hated, persecuted, and some of them even would lose their lives. And uh, if we follow in the footsteps of Jesus, if we're bringing light into the world and addressing sin, calling people to repent, uh, we're probably not going to be very popular people either. Now, Jesus, let's, I want to pick up and start reading in John chapter 7 and verse 14. I'm reading from the New King James in the New Testament. John chapter 7, I'm going to read verses 14 to 18. Now, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, never having studied? Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it's from God or whether I speak of my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why then do you seek to kill me? So, uh, Jesus starts off saying, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. Now, when I hear the word doctrine, there's a whole lot of stuff that goes off in my head about what that means, what I think of, and I want to ask you the same question. When you hear the word doctrine, he says, My doctrine is not my own, but his who sent me. The Bible talks about doctrine in the New Testament. What do you think of, typically? I'll tell you what I think of when I hear the word doctrine. When I think of doctrine, I think of theology. Okay? Uh, I think of theology, like, uh, you know, belief in the Trinity, inerrancy of Scripture, virgin birth of Jesus, how somebody becomes a Christian, uh, whether in the Lord's Supper Christ is is, uh, really present or not, in what sense, what happens when Jesus returns, will there be a literal thousand-year reign? When I hear the word doctrine, that's what I think of. Okay? whether the Holy Spirit literally dwells in people, things like this. I think, I think of theology. However, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. The word that's translated doctrine here, and it's really, it's a carryover from, this is the new, I'm reading out of the New King James, but a lot of modern translations uh, uh, use that, that word, but it's a carryover from the King James because that's how it's rendered there. 
And uh, I asked Susan and Chris if they had a, a little pocket dictionary or something like that so I could look up the meaning of the word doctrine. And, and, and this is what they gave me right here. So we'll, we'll use this. This is, actually, this is exactly what I wanted. This is Noah Webster's 1828 dictionary of the American Dictionary of the English Language. And what I like about this dictionary, Noah Webster is a classic New Englander he was a famous Bible translator and uh, one of the maybe the greatest linguists that ever ever come out of the United States. So he, he knew many languages, and he had a passion. He wanted to make sure that people, when they're reading the Bible, understood the meaning of the words in everyday language. So what Noah Webster did was he made sure that all of the words that he defined, he would explain what they mean in the Bible and what they mean in everyday language. So people, so they could have a common sense understanding. So you have the King James Bible and Noah Webster's uh, 1828 American Dictionary of the English Language. Uh, you can do pretty well for yourself. So I'm going to take a look at what the word doctrine means. So one of the one of the challenges is that. Meanings of words change over time. You think of the word gay. It means something totally different now than it meant a hundred years ago. Okay, the word doctrine, I think of theology. But what did it mean? And, and I'll get, let Noah Webster define it here. Doctrine, meaning number one. In a general sense, whatever is taught. Hence, a principle or position in any science, whatever it's laid down, is true by an instructor or master. The doctrines of the gospel, the principles or truths taught by Christ and his apostle. The doctrines of Plato are the principles which he taught. Hence, a doctrine may be true or false. It may be a mere tenet or opinion. And he gives five definitions here of the meaning of doctrine. That's number one meaning. And he explains how it's used in the scripture. None of them mention anything about theology. Doctrine just means teaching. That's all it means. It's a teaching. So uh, if you say, you know, it, it, and you think of when somebody has a, a, a doctorate, you have a doctor of theology. I think we've got at least uh, maybe one, one uh, doctor in the, in the house here. But, but uh, uh, if somebody has a doctorate, that means they've reached a level where they can, they're a master and they can teach the material. That's where the, the meaning of the word comes from. So when he says... My doctrine is not mine. It's a carryover from the King James. What it means is my teaching is not mine. He's not talking about theology. And I'll tell you why this is particularly important for me and I think some others in the room here. Okay, I think of a, a verse that was used in the past, 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 16. And I was taught it in the NIV, which is a carryover from the King James. And it says, in the NIV, it says, uh, Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you'll save both yourselves and your hearers. And so what I was taught was, your doctrine is your theology. So your theology has to be right, and your life has to be right. But that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, your teaching has to be right. He's telling, Paul's telling Timothy, you have to make sure that what you're teaching is right, and you have to make sure that your life is right, that both of them both of them line up. So he's not talking about theology. Now, I'm not trying to downplay the importance of making sure that what we're teaching theologically is correct, but there's never an excuse, no matter what anybody's noble agenda is, that they think there's never an excuse for taking 
scriptures out of context or or using words in a different sense than they're originally intended. So, and, and I would encourage you also, uh, you can check this out for yourself. You can use a, a Greek interlinear or whatever. Just it says, what's the meaning of the word? What's the real meaning of the word that's translated doctrine there? And many of the modern translations will translate it uh, like the uh, uh, even the uh, the uh, American Standard, which is maybe one of the most literal translations from 1900. Uh, talks about watch your teaching and your lie in yourself, your life, or the ESV. So, so that that's that's the sense is that doctrine means teaching. So I'm not downplaying the importance of theology, but that's just not what it's what it talks about when it's talking about doctrine. May I ask uh, there. A question? Yes. Uh, my NIV <laughs> says Jesus answered, "My teaching is not my own." Okay. Okay. But it, the yeah. same NIV in the other scripture says doc. Is that a different Greek word or no? It's the same. It's, a, so it's it, the same word. It's the same word. So it's the same so. word. And, and the translators have to make a decision when they're translating a word. Do you sometimes they'll translate the same word the same, and sometimes they'll translate it differently. So, but that's the. It's but this, it is the same. Yeah, I believe Greek it's. The, I believe it's the same word, but they just render it differently. And in many cases, they're following the King James. Uh, and, and people are reluctant to, to, to drift from that, although the, the meaning of the word in popular usage has shifted a bit. So let's, let's get back into the scripture. Jesus is saying, my teaching, which could be teaching on sin, teaching on how you need to live your, live your life. Well, he says, but teaching that I'm giving you is from my Father. Now Jesus, in his teaching, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, well, Moses taught you this, but I'm telling you this. Moses told you uh, you can't commit adultery. I said you can't even lust. Moses said you can't commit murder, but I tell you you can't hate your brother. So Jesus is saying, my teaching is from the Father, what I'm giving you. So uh, let's, let's continue reading. <coughs> let's back up in verse 19. Now, Keep in mind, there's a little background for this, in John chapter 5, Jesus is in Jerusalem at the Feast of the Tabernacles during this chapter here. In John chapter 5, Jesus had been down in Jerusalem on a previous trip, and he healed a man at the, at the pool, a crippled man, and people wanted to kill him for doing that. Now, why would you heal? Why would you want to kill someone who healed a crippled man? It's John chapter five and verse sixteen. It says, "For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus, sought to kill him, because he done these things on the Sabbath." So, people, the Jews wanted to kill Jesus because he healed someone on the Sabbath. What's the problem with that? God says in the law of Moses. This is one of the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath, which was Saturday for the, for the, for the Jews. The Sabbath, you know, Saturday, Saturday is the Sabbath. So uh, he said that you can't work on the Sabbath, and anybody who works on the Sabbath gets killed. So, you know, the whole thing, Jesus is he's not out plowing a field or building a house or chopping wood on the Sabbath. He's healing somebody. So these people want to kill him for that, which is obviously pretty ridiculous. So let's read John chapter uh, chapter 7, starting in verse 19. We'll back up there and, and just follow along here. 
He said, didn't Moses give you the law? None of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The people answered and said, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work and you all marvel. Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I man made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with a righteous judgment. So people are coming after Jesus. They want to kill him for breaking the law of Moses in their mind. Jesus had defended his actions in John chapter 5 before, but here he returns to this question about the healing on the Sabbath, and he goes after them using Moses. They're attacking him with Moses, and he counters with Moses. And he says, first of all, none of you are following the law of Moses. He says, you're, you're, you want to kill me? And they say, oh, no, we don't. He says, yes, you do. You're trying to kill me. And he says, you're the ones breaking the law of Moses. And then he goes on and he says, after all, when you circumcise boys on the Sabbath to keep the law of Moses. What's he talking about here? This goes back to Genesis chapter 17. We did a, a series going through Genesis uh, before we went through John. Genesis chapter 17, you may remember, God gives the covenant of circumcision to Abraham. And of course, Moses is the author of the first five books, which is why the discussion, no, it came from the fathers. He, he said, Moses gave you circumcision, but actually came through the fathers. So Moses gave us the book of Genesis, the first five books of the Bible, but it was actually, the, the, the command was given first to Abraham and then confirmed through, through Moses later on. So it first came down through the patriarchs. So that's literally correct on both counts. <coughs> and the law that was, the, the commandment that was given to Abraham, it says, every male that is born of your descendants has to be circumcised on the eighth day. So, let's think about that. If a baby boy is born on a Friday, when does he have to get circumcised? It says on the eighth day. Well, he, you know, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, count the days off. If he's born on a Friday, he must be circumcised on the eighth day, which would be the following Saturday, which is the Sabbath. So he says, you're breaking the Sabbath. You're doing work on the Sabbath by circumcising so that you can keep the law of Moses. And this was, it was so emphatic, it says in Genesis 17, anyone who isn't circumcised on the Sabbath will be cut off. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm wrong. Anyone who isn't circumcised on the eighth day will be cut off. So this was a requirement. You have to be circumcised on the eighth day. And that's why it says in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 1, when it talks about the birth of John the Baptist, in verse 59, it says he was circumcised on the eighth day. In Luke chapter 2, verse 21, it says about Jesus, 
when he was circumcised on the eighth day. And Paul in Philippians chapter 3 says the same thing. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day. So it's basically check mark. I am a bona fide, legitimate descendant of Abraham and partaker in the covenant because I was circumcised on the eighth day exactly as it says. So Jesus uses this to go after them and he says, if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so the law of Moses should not be broken, why are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Don't judge according to appearances but judge with a righteous judgment. So I think that's as brilliant how Jesus uses his knowledge of the Old Testament when people are accusing him of breaking the law of Moses, he counters by he counters with, with Moses himself. <coughs> and now the arguments get more and more heated as we continue here about whether Jesus is the Son of God or not, whether he is the Messiah. <coughs> In verse 25. Now some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers indeed know this is truly the Christ? However, we know where this man is from. But when the Christ comes, no one will know where he is from. So, let's think about that. Uh, a dispute is breaking out among the Jews. Some of them think he's the Christ. Some of them don't think he's the Christ. And they're arguing back and forth among themselves. And on the positive side, the people who say, well, I think maybe he is the Christ, they're saying, well, look, he's performing great miracles. This is one thing. He healed a crippled man in Jerusalem. Everybody knows that. So he's performing miracles. He's teaching with authority. And the leaders haven't shut him down. So if he wasn't the Christ, the leaders would, 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 tell, would, would pull him off and, and shut him down. So the leaders aren't doing anything about it. Maybe he is the Christ. On the negative side, there's this argument that seems strange to us. He says, well, we know where this guy's from. And this is in Jerusalem. They say, well, everybody knows this is Jesus of Nazareth. He's the carpenter. He's the carpenter's son. He's from Nazareth a small village of, of no account in Galilee in the north. So we know where this guy's from. They say, when the Christ comes, no one will know where he's from. Well, where does that come from? Where does, you know, th- think about it. Where, is there any place in the Old Testament that says no one will know where the Christ is from when he comes? There are a lot of prophecies in Scripture that talk about... I wrestle with things like this. What are they talking about? There are a lot of prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about the Christ. The Christ is talked, spoken about plainly in, in Psalm 2. In Daniel 9, Christ is mentioned specifically. Uh, the Christ, the Son of David, the one who would inherit the eternal kingdom, is a prophecy a thousand years before the time of Jesus. And... Uh, uh, given to David by, uh, by Nathan the prophet in 2 Samuel chapter 7, 1 Chronicles 17. Uh, in Psalm 110, or if you have a, a, a Septuagint Bible, it would be in uh, Psalm 109. There's one passage that might give some light to this. It says he would be a priest forever 
on the order of Melchizedek. Now, where where'd Melchizedek come from? Nobody knows. He just he just kind of appears out of nowhere in the story in Genesis. So maybe that's what they're thinking. This guy's going to be like Melchizedek, the Christ. So we won't know where he comes from. Or let's turn to Micah chapter five. Maybe this is what they were thinking. But this will tie into. Um, you can turn with me there, in Micah chapter five. So I'm reading from a. Versions based on the Septuagint. <coughs> Micah chapter 5, starting in verse 1. This is a famous prophecy about the, the birth in Bethlehem. However, there's another part of this which the early Christians found particularly significant. In Micah chapter 5, starting in verse 1, it says, And you, O Bethlehem, house of Ephrathah, Though you are fewest in number among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler of Israel. His goings forth were from the beginning, even from everlasting. So, this is a prophecy about the birth of the Messiah coming from Bethlehem, the descendant of David coming from the city of David. But there's also this mysterious second part of the promise here. It says, his going forth were from the beginning, even from everlasting. So uh, the idea is that the origin of the Messiah would be from everlasting. And many early Christian writers pointed to this, and they tied this in with what the New Testament teaches that the Son of God was before all things. In John chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, that He was before all things, that all things were made through Him. And even as it says in Micah chapter 5, verse 1, His goings forth were from the beginning, from everlasting, that He had no beginning, He was from eternity, that His origins were based in eternity. So, Maybe that's what they're thinking here, too, that his origins would be from everlasting. No one will know where he's from. I'm not sure. But for whatever reason, they're questioning the fact that they know where he's from. They're questioning whether this is going to be the, uh, could possibly be the Messiah or not. They think that's a reason why it couldn't be. <clears throat> Let's continue in verse 28. Then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple, saying, You both know me. And you know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. And many of the people believed in him and said, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than th these which this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him, and the Pharisees and chief priests sent officers to take him. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come. Then the Jews said among themselves, Where does he intend to go? We shall not find him. Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he said, you will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come? 
So, <clears throat> Jesus challenges the crowd. He says, you know who I am, and you know where I'm from. And based on that challenge, many people believe him, and the religious leaders realize things are getting out of hand here. They see that the crowd, many in the crowd are following him. He's impacting the crowd. They feel threatened, and they try to take him. They try to seize him. But Jesus' answer to them is, I'm, I'm about to leave. So they're, they're going to grab him, and he says, I'm... You know, I'm about to leave, and where I go, you're not going to be able to go there anyway. So maybe they decide, perhaps, I'm not sure, maybe they decide if he's going to leave, there's no point in grabbing him, particularly if he's going to go somewhere where we can't go. Maybe there were Jews who were scattered all throughout the world. There were Jewish synagogues and colonies in all the Greek-speaking parts of the world. So that's what he says, well, maybe he's going to go and visit the Jews the Greek-speaking Jews in other parts of the world is going to go among the, to our people who are scattered among the Greeks. So they assume that he's going to leave and the problem is perhaps the problem is going to go away. And he says, I'm going to go and where I go, you won't be able to find me. Does this remind you of anything else that Jesus says in the Gospel of John? Well, John 13, 14, 15, 16, Jesus talks to his disciples. And he says, I'm going to go somewhere. And, and Thomas says, well, tell us the way to where you're going. He says, he explains you can't go there. I'm going somewhere. He's obviously is referring to his death, that he's going he's gonna to go to the cross, that he's going to die. And then ultimately after that, he'll be ascended to see at the right hand of the Father. So he's going to go somewhere that they can't go. Jesus uses this similar language, very similar language. So I assume he's saying the same thing right here. Now, the last part that I want to take a look at here today is in verses 37 to 39. I'll tell you right now, this has given me no end of difficulty in trying to understand exactly what's going on. So I'll tell you, I'll share with you what I think, what I know, but I've really struggled with this passage right here. Verse 37. On the last that great day of the feast, so this is the, the last day the Feast of Tabernacles lasts a whole week. Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, the difficulty that I had in this passage is in verse 38. Jesus says, he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. No problem. Verse 38, He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, most people will look at the look in the footnotes of their Bible and see what's the Old Testament passage that's being referred to here. And um, I couldn't think of anything. Nothing came to mind. Nothing was noted in my Bible. So I was thinking, well, if Jesus says the scriptures say it, it must be in there somewhere. So, so I'm just trying to think, what is he talking about here? What does this tie in with? 
One thing I thought of that it ties in with is in John chapter 4, remember what Jesus said to the woman at the well. She said she's at the well, and he says, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me for a drink, and I would give you living water, and you'll never thirst again. And he says the water will become a fountain springing up to eternal life. That's in John chapter 4, verses 5 to 10. So he's talking about the same thing here to the Jews. I think pretty clearly that he's talking to the Samaritan woman. So this fills in a little more. He says he's talking about the Holy Spirit, which would be given, which would become like a fountain of water dwelling in them and welling up to eternal life that would always feed and sustain them. This whole idea of drinking and thirsting. As I take a sip of water here. It reminds me of a number of other passages in Scripture. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, and Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be filled. I also think uh, of of a couple of other passages... Uh, One of them is, let's turn to Isaiah chapter 55, about thirsting, spiritual thirst. Again, I'm reading from a version based on the Septuagint. It's uh, usually the version generally quoted when the New Testament writers uh, quote from the Old Testament. This is generally what they're following. So it may be a little different than than what what you have. In Isaiah chapter 55, starting in verse 1. You who are thirsty, go to the water. And all who have no money, go and buy wine and fat, and eat and drink without money and price. Why do you value at the price of money and give your toil for what does not satisfy? Listen to me and eat good things, and your soul will delight in good things. Incline your ears and follow my ways. Listen to me, and your soul shall live in good things. I'll make an everlasting covenant with you, the holy and faithful things of David. Behold, I made him a witness among the Gentiles, a ruler and commander of the Gentiles. The Gentiles, which did not know you, shall call upon you. And the people who did not understand you shall take refuge in you because of your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he glorified you. Seek the Lord, and when you find him, call upon him when he draws near to you. Let the ungodly man abandon his ways and the lawless man his counsel. And let him return to the Lord. He will have mercy on him. He shall forgive your sins abundantly. For my counsels are not as your counsels, neither are your ways my ways, says the Lord. But as heaven is distant from the earth, so my way distant from your ways, as your thoughts from my mind. For as rain comes down, or snow from heaven, and does not return until it saturates the earth, and it brings forth and produces and gives seed to the sower and bread for the food, so shall my word be whatever proceeds from my mouth. It shall not return until it accomplishes whatever I will, and I shall prosper your ways and my commandments. So it's a great passage of Scripture. There's an invitation that's being issued in Isaiah for those who are spiritually thirsting. For those who hunger and thirst, only God can satisfy that thirst, that the world can't satisfy it. He says, listen to the word of the Lord and be satisfied. 
He talks about he'll make a new covenant and open the doors up to the Gentiles here. He says that we must abandon our sinful ways and that God will forgive the sins of those who turn to him. He says the word proceeding from his mouth will accomplish amazing things on the earth like the rain and the snow that comes down and brings life and growth and plants. Uh, it also reminds me, this passage also reminds me about thirsting for God, a famous opening to Psalm 42 or Psalm 41, Septuagint, as the deer longs for springs of water. So my soul longs for you, O God. My soul thirsts for the living God. So this love of God is described as a thirst that can't be satisfied with anything short of God. Uh, now, although I wrestle with this passage here, the, the, the part that I wrestle with is when Jesus talks about, as it is written in the scriptures, that, that a, a springs of rivers of water will flow up from your heart. I mean, literally, it's the word that's used there is literally from your belly, it's from your insides. Basically, it's your, your, your innards. The, but the, the, the rivers of water will flow up from the inside, referring to the Holy Spirit. So, uh, I, I, it troubled, it's troubled me for several weeks as, as only Allison knows that I wrestle with this is where does it say this in the scripture so I've looked all over my Old Testament looking at Septuagint and, uh, and then I started late at night I, I take a lantern and a spade and I go out and I dig up the bodies of ancient Christians and ask them so I looked in the Ananiasine Fathers and couldn't find any answer there none of them had the answer and then I went back to, uh, to uh, uh, John Chrysostom, who's in the, he's uh, lived in the mid-300s, the early 400s, and uh, uh, he was a great preacher and bishop in Constantinople. He's, he's an expositor of preacher. I knew he went through the whole Gospel of John. And so I, I wanted to say, okay, when he got to this part, when it talks about as it is written in the Scriptures, uh, what did he say? And here was his conclusion, commenting on this question I was struggling with. He said, where did the scriptures say this? Nowhere. So that, I, I struck out with John. I, I had to you know, put him back in the grave and, and let him go. So I'm, I'm struggling. Let me ask past you. I'm struggling to learn Greek largely. So I, I learned to read the Septuagint. So I was thinking, maybe if you change, maybe is there something in the Septuagint that people have been missing? And I, I asked my, my Greek teacher, I said, in Isaiah 44, verses 2 and 4, 2, 3, and 4, I said, if you punctuated that sentence differently than it's typically punctuated, and the punctuation, you know, the, the old manuscripts didn't have any punctuation, so it's the translators who have to add that. It's all, it's all capital letters with no periods or quotation marks or anything. So I said, if you punctuated that differently, it might sound a lot like what Jesus is saying. And my Greek teacher said, uh, that's possible, but it's not very likely, and he explained why, and uh, his answer made perfect sense to me. So... Uh, perhaps Jesus is using this expression figuratively that this is explained in the scriptures by allegory or by figure of speech. And I want to let's look at a few scriptures that may touch on that, and I'll let you just think about that yourselves. And Isaiah chapter 43. This is one that comes to mind. And the wording of it, now keep in mind. When Jesus and the apostles are quoted from the Old Testament, they're almost always quoting the Septuagint, and even in places where the Septuagint Masoretic texts disagree, they're nine out of ten times clearly quoting from the Septuagint. So that's what that's where they're coming out of. And in uh, in Isaiah 
chapter 43, think about this. In verses 18 to 20, reading from the Septuagint, Do not remember the former things, nor reason about the things of old. Behold, I will do new things which shall now spring forth, and you shall know them. I shall make a road in the desert and rivers in the waterless places. The wild animals of the field will bless me, and the sirens and daughters of sparrows, because I gave water in the wilderness and rivers in the waterless place to give drink to my race, my chosen, my people whom I preserved to declare my virtues. Uh, so, <clears throat> Jesus, it, it says that God gave water in the wilderness. I shall give rivers in waterless places. And he's going to be, he's going to be feeding and taking care of his people. In Isaiah chapter 48, in verse 21, reading again from the Septuagint, it said, If they shall thirst, he will lead them through the desert, and water shall flow from the rock for them. He will split the rock, and water shall flow, and my people will drink. So, now you think this would be in the past tense because Isaiah is writing long after the wandering of people in the wilderness. Now when the people are wandering in the wilderness, in the book of Exodus and Numbers, it says that they drank from a rock, that Moses struck the rock and water came out of the rock and people drank from that rock. That's what sustained them. They drank and their animals drank. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it talks about this. It says that the whole story of the wandering in the wilderness is an allegory of the Christian life. It says that all of those people were baptized in Moses in the cloud and the sea. And it says they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. It says they all drank from the rock that accompanied them or that followed them. And that rock was Christ. So the idea that the rock that produced water to, to, to sustain the people in the wilderness was Christ. That the people were drinking from Christ, that he is the one that quenched their thirst all the way through the promised land. So uh, this is Isaiah, Isaiah, 40, Isaiah 48. Uh, that's what he's saying. He says, I will in the future, he's writing after long after the, the, the time of the wilderness, he says, I, I will in the future provide them with water in the wilderness. And it's interesting to me, he says in Isaiah 48, in verse 21, If they thirst, he will lead them through the desert, and water shall flow from the rock for them. He'll split the rock and water shall flow. So the rock throughout the scriptures in so many places represents Christ, and this is something that's going to be happening in the future. So maybe this touches on this as well. Zechariah chapter 14 is another uh, reference to, to, uh, to water that may tie in with this. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 13. This is a great uh, a passage. Let's turn there. Jeremiah chapter 2. He says, My people have committed two evils. They forsook me, the fountain of living water and hewed for themselves broken cisterns unable to hold water. So, 
this is, this, is, this, is, this, this scripture particularly touches my heart. I make my living as a water engineer. That's what I do. So what do you do as a water engineer? Well, um, do pumping, uh, you know, pumping stations for water. So a lot of the water in the, the Boston area comes from pumping stations that I, I design as, a, as an environmental engineer. Uh, water treatment plants and also wells, cisterns, groundwater pumping. That's, that's basically, that's what I do. All kinds of water engineering. And so the picture here is, he says, they forsook me the fountain of living water. God is describing who he is. He is the fountain of living water. He is the only one that can sustain us. And the broken cisterns, what are the broken cisterns? The broken cisterns are everything else that people go after to try to satisfy themselves in this life. Whether it's money, wealth, other, whether it's other gods, it's living for pleasure, it's all broken cisterns that hold no water. It's empty. You put, you put, now I've worked on some projects where there are water tanks that have a leak in it and the water all goes into the ground. It's, it's useless, it's no good. And that's what it's saying, is that I'm the source, I'm the fountain of living water and all these others are useless. There's another place that talks about water, perhaps tied in with this, Ezekiel, I think it's Ezekiel 47, there's an image of the temple and it's it's a uh, very uh, vivid image where there are rivers of water coming out from the temple and bringing all kinds of life. And certainly throughout the scriptures in the New Testament, the idea of the temple and the body are tied together. In 1 Corinthians it says our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says in John chapter 2, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days, referring to his body. So the idea of water rushing out from the temple and living water rushing out from the temple, maybe that's what Jesus is referring to. I'm not sure, but there are many allusions to this. But I, I hope that we will see, it opens our eyes up to the fact that there is only one source of water for those who thirst spiritually that will satisfy us. And that Jesus provides that to us and that through the Holy Spirit and through faith in Jesus Christ and becoming disciples of His, that we can have that well of water that will be sustaining us no matter what we are, where we are or what we're doing. That uh, this is a wonderful image that Jesus gives us that he will give us living water that will last forever. We'll stop there for today.